have shared this before, but it, it, it's just such a, a stark and wonderful picture, I think, for me of, of the church. And so if you've heard this before from me, bear with me, but uh, it was some years ago that this documentary called Free Solo came out. And I watched it a couple of times because it was incredibly fascinating. Uh, this guy named Alex Honnold, uh, who is a professional rock climber, uh, and, and his kind of particular thing is free solo climbing. Now, free and solo have a real specific meaning there. Uh, solo means you climb alone, and, and it's possible to climb alone on, when you rock climb, especially on routes that already have bolts uh, uh, taken in, or if you bring cams along with you, you can hook in and climb alone. But the free part means no ropes, no cams, no nothing, just a rock and your hands and feet. And he's the first person, to anyone's knowledge, uh, to climb El Capitan in California's Yosemite Valley free solo. This is a 3,000-foot monster uh, granite cliff face that he climbed up, took him about four hours, which is incredibly fast, uh, to climb from the bottom to the top uh, free and solo. Well, I think we can all see the incredible dangers that there are in that. And the vast majority of people who attempt that do not do it successfully. I think there's a great analogy here as a picture for us of the Christian life. See, Scripture is clear that Jesus is the rock. He's the rock that some people trip and stumble on. He's the rock that some people are saved by. We sing songs calling him the rock of ages. And when, when Alex climbs this rock, there's no doubt that the rock is not going anywhere. The rock is sure. The rock is certain. The rock is secure. It is immovable. It is impervious. And Christ is all of those things. He is sure. He is certain. He is immovable. He is impervious to all of the things that attack our weakness. And when we believe in him, when we trust his work, that is his sinless life, to be the sinless life that we should have lived, when we trust that his death it replaces our death, not just physical death, we still die physically, but that he spiritually, he bears the punishment that we deserve for our sin and that he doesn't deserve because he lived perfectly. Uh, when he dies, he dies in our place and then is resurrected three days later, not only showing that he is victorious over life and death, but, that, but is vindicated in his message that he can provide life for all of us. When we trust that, we take hold of the rock that is Christ. But I think the book of Hebrews, I think many passages in Scripture are clear that climbing the rock free solo, climbing the rock alone, is dangerous. That while the rock never moves, we are prone to fall. We are prone to wander. We're prone to get tired and weary and weak. And how can you climb a 3,000-foot rock safely when other climbers are connected to the rock and then you are connected to those other climbers? In fact, I saw a video just the other day of a climber who was hooked in and they were, he and one other climber were climbing a rock and he fell. And, and he went, and when the, he gets to the bottom of the rope, this cam that he'd plugged into a crack in the rock, it comes out, and he keeps going. But the next cam, it held. He would have fallen and died if he was alone. But he and another climber were not only hooked to the rock, but to each other. And when he fell, there was great safety there. And so as we unpack our vision this month uh, of who we are and what we're doing, we see that we're not only taking steps, and that's what we saw last week, that all of us are in process in the Christian life. All of us are, are taking steps, our next steps in maturity, our next steps in obedience, our next steps in faithfulness. But we take steps together. We climb the rock that is Christ together. 
There are lots of misunderstandings about the church. Uh, I think in many ways, uh, even I'm guilty in the way I speak of this. I think most of us are guilty of this type of thinking. Uh, we think of the church as an organization. It's a 501c3 as affirmed by the IRS, and you have this organization that has founding documents, and it's recognized by the state, and so a church is this organization, or we see it as an institution that has been put in place by God, or even we refer to the church as a location, like a building, like, oh, the Trinity Church is at 595 Abbott Road. But none of those are accurate representations of what the church is. Is. And so I want to talk a little bit today about what the church is, what the church is called to do, and why it matters. Uh, we're going to be a little technical at the beginning, but we're going to see that it really does matter. So first, let's ask and answer the question, what is a church? Most basically, a church is an assembly of believers, and when I say that, I'm speaking in the context of a local church. There are two ways that Scripture speaks of the church. There is a local church that is a local assembly of believers, and then there is the universal church. That is all believers in all places for all times. And so in Romans 16.5 and in 1 Corinthians 16.19, we hear of churches that, are, uh, that meet in people's homes. These would have been small gatherings. Um, it's pretty common today to, to think that, oh, look, most of the churches in Acts were, were in homes. The early church met in homes. They didn't meet in large places. Uh, I'm not going to try and prove that wrong here, but if you'd like to talk about that, I, I'd love to show you some historical evidence that the church, one, met in large places where there was large gatherings and converted homes into places of worship that were no longer homes uh, from the beginning of the founding of the church. The church was making buildings for, its, uh, for the purpose of worship, but uh, but these church, churches met in a home, whether it was an individual's home. Some of them, I think, were. These would have been incredibly small churches. Some of them may have met in homes that were, um, that, that were converted into a church. But Romans 16.5 says, greet also the church in their house. So there's a house church there. 1 Corinthians 16.19 says, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So we really see that the size of the gathering is far less important than the gathering itself. Uh, sometimes the word refers to an entire city, and this may be multiple churches in a city, or it could be that there was just one church in that city. I'm not certain of which is true in either of these, and maybe both is true. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. He says the same thing in 2 Corinthians, to the church of God that is in Corinth. In 1 Thessalonians 1.1, he says, to the church of the Thessalonians. And so sometimes you see the word church refers to an entire city, and then sometimes it's used in an even larger context than that. In Acts 9.31, Paul, or not Paul, Luke writes, so the church throughout all Judea and Excuse me, all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. So there's all of Israel, basically, Judea uh, in the south, Galilee to the north, Samaria central and to the west, uh, had peace and was being built up. It doesn't say churches, it just refers to the church, the whole church in this area was being built up. And then maybe at the very top, we see in Ephesians 5.25, when, when uh, giving instructions to husbands, Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And certainly that must be seen as a universal reference to the church and possibly even a reference to all believers of all time. So the church is used to talk all the way from every believer to very small gatherings of believers. But today, I want to talk about that local church assembly. What is a local church? And this is where the word church maybe doesn't do us much good. I think maybe the meaning from the New Testament of the word has lost its meaning as it would have been understood in the New Testament. We get the word church not from any Greek word. Um, it comes from the Scottish word kirk. 
Uh, the, the word in the New Testament for, uh, for church is ecclesia. It comes from the prefix ek, which means out, and kaleo, to call. And so literally, the church is the called out ones. It is those who have been called out of the world. But this, this idea of calling out uh, as, as the New Testament is being written is really understood not as some kind of organization or an institution, but really it's understood to be an assembly. And this is where Acts 19 gets really, really helpful. We're going to pick up in verse 21, but let me explain the context of Acts 19 to you uh, before we pick up there. Uh, Paul has gone to Ephesus, and in, in Ephesus, there is this temple to Artemis. And Artemis is this female god, and there is a large temple there, and there is much worship there, and there is a large economy for silver idols of Artemis. And as Paul preaches the gospel, and as people believe that the trade of silver idols is being diminished, and, and the people in Ephesus are upset. Paul is disrupting their livelihood, he is disrupting their wealth, he is disrupting their worship and their economy, and the people are upset about it. Now, in verse 21, we see now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent, him, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there was no little disturbance concerning the way. That's what the church was called uh, from the beginning. It was called the way. Uh, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods, and there is danger not only in this trade of and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, in the rest, as we read the rest of this chapter, the word that, that most often gets translated church in the New Testament occurs three times. See if you can find them as we continue to read. When they heard this, they were enraged and were, saying, and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians where Paul's, uh, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater." Now some cried one thing, some cried another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hands, one hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is uh, know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another, for if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Did you see the word church in here? It occurs three times. 
First, it occurs in verse 32. Now, some cried out one thing, some another. So this is a riotous mob of Artemis worshipers who are angry at Paul. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the church, the assembly, was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Verse 39, after calming this riotous church down uh, and, and explaining to the people uh, what, what's going on, he, uh, he, he tells them, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular church, the regular assembly. This would be a regular, we might call this a town hall meeting. It was a regular assembly of the people in the town. And then in verse 41, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. All three of those occurrences of the word assembly here are ecclesia. It is just as the New Testament is being written, the common word for assembly. And any early New Testament Greek reader would have understood the church not to necessarily be a location or an organization or a tax status or a building or even a a program put on by paid professional ministers. They would have understood it to be an assembly. The church is an assembly. In 1 Corinthians, I think as well, Paul makes it clear that it is the assembling of ourselves that makes us a church. In 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, when Paul begins to give instructions on communion and the abuse of the communion, he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, not when you come together in the church, not when you come together for the church, But the language here is pretty specific, that it is coming together that makes the church. Paul clearly understood the church to be an assembly. In 1 Corinthians 14.23, he says, If therefore the whole church comes together. And so there is this expectation throughout the New Testament of assembling of ourselves, and that that's what makes Or at least that's the beginning of what makes a church. But the question is, what kind of assembly? It's pretty frequent if I go to Safeway that I might run into two or even three other people from Trinity. And so if three of us bump into each other at the grocery store and there we are, is that a church? What about, if, uh, what about tomorrow night when my growth group gathers in the home of our growth group leader? Is that a church? Well, there are some other criteria that we see biblically. I want to draw a little bit on some, uh, some history and then on some modern context, but I think these will be helpful. There are some additional things that make a church. So Martin Luther said this. He said, the congregation of saints or the assembly of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered. The church historically has understood that there are a few things necessary in order to be a church. Number one is the assembling of believers. Number two is the right preaching of the gospel. If you get the gospel wrong, you don't have a church. There is no such thing as a Mormon church. There is no such thing as a Jehovah's Witness church. You must preach the gospel rightly in order to be a church. And you must rightly administer the sacraments. If I might step on some toes... This might mean, if we understand that to be true, that there is no such thing as the Catholic Church. Because God does not use baptism and communion to save people. John Calvin agreed, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there is not to be doubted Uh, There, it is not to be doubted, a church of God exists. 
Wayne Grudem, a more modern context, would say that baptism and the Lord's Supper also serve as membership controls for the church. Baptism is the means for admitting people into the church, and the Lord's Supper is the means for allowing people to give a sign of continuing in the membership of the church. The church signifies that it, is, that it considers those who receive baptism and the Lord's Supper to be saved. Baptism doesn't connect you to the rock. Baptism formally connects you to other believers. Communion does not formally connect you to the rock. But when you're climbing, you ever watch climbers climb? They regularly check the rope. Are we still hooked in where we should be? Communion is checking the rope. It is a regular reminder that we're still hooked to one another. And so we have the assembling, we have the right preaching of the gospel, we have the right administration of the sacraments, or really the ordinances, and I would add an additional feature, and that is spiritual authority. That is the spiritual authority of pastors and elders, which is really just the same office. Listen to Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul tells Titus, This is why I left you in Crete. Crete is a small island off the coast of Greece. Uh, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and point elders in every town as I directed you. The only way to understand that appointing elders and putting them in place in the churches there is in order is to understand that a lack of elders or pastors or overseers, all uh, words that refer to the same office in the New Testament, is out of order. And so if a church has no spiritual authority... There may be times when there's transition, but again, I would charge that this is why there's a plurality of elders. Notice that Paul doesn't say to appoint an elder in every town, but to appoint elders in every town. And if you understood first century Crete, you would know that there is no town on Crete big enough to have multiple churches. Every church there had multiple elders. In fact, in the New Testament, every time elders are spoken of inside of a local church, the word is always plural. While John may call himself an elder, churches in the New Testament always have elders. Uh, So I would say, what is a church? A church is an assembly, a local church is a local assembly of believers who preach the gospel rightly, who administer the ordinances properly, and who have God-ordained spiritual authority. What is the purpose of that assembly, though? Because there's a lot of people out there, let me back up for a moment and say, there's, there's a lot of people out there who would say, excuse me, that, that such and such a church is my home church. I went to a, a gathering of uh, church leaders in Tucson where a guy was presenting for the police department this interagency task force against meth. Excuse me, I'd never met the man before. He worked for the Tucson Police Department, got up on stage at this meeting and said that he was a member of Christ Community Church. This was a church I pastored at, and I was there with about four other pastors, and none of us had any clue who this guy was. He can call himself a member of that church, He can say he belongs to that church all day long, and that church can do the right things. But if he's not part of the assembling of the church, he's not part of the church. Because a church is an assembly. It's not like Costco, where you can get a membership and be like, well, I'm a member, but I never drive over there. No, it doesn't work that way. A church is an assembly. So if this assembly exists, if we're gathered together, if we're preaching rightly, if we're administering the sacraments or the ordinances rightly, if we have spiritual authority, what is the purpose of the church? Why does it exist? That's what I want to talk about next. And I think there are three purposes for the church. And this is where we get a little less technical, uh, a little more leaning into what do we do as a church? And then pretty quickly here, we'll talk about what does this mean for you and me as we sit here today? 
There are, there, there's a lot of freedom, by the way, in what a church can do. And so this is not so much task-oriented. Now, Scripture is clear about certain things that a church must do. I think the Scripture is clear that a church must gather, that a church must preach, a church must pray, a church must disciple. But even that, there's some freedom in how that is done. A church must baptize and teach to obey. There are some things that are non-negotiable in the church. But then there's a lot of room to simply be wise. And so we're not going to say, hey, these are the tasks that the church has to perform. We're going to speak to the purposes, three purposes of the church. The first purpose of the church is worship. This worship is ministry to God. The first purpose of the church is worship. And if, I, if you don't hear me say anything else today, hear me say this. Because this is the ultimate end of the church. Worship is not a means to an end. Some of the other purposes of the church are a means, but they're a means to this end. Worship is the ultimate priority in the church. Do not mistake worship for music. Music can be worship. But there is much more to worship than music. Worship is the the declaring of God's worth. Is he worthy of taking up our cross and following him? Is he worthy of putting to death what is earthly in us? Is he worthy of abandoning our idols Is he worthy of giving him a fraction of my my time on a Sunday morning? Worship is declaring what is ultimately worthy. And we go, I know I should read my Bible every day, but life is so busy. We've declared the worth of something else as more important than God. When we say, well, I know I should go to church this morning, but I'm tired, or the sun's out, we're declaring the worth of something. In all of these decisions, we're declaring the worth of God. Well, I know I shouldn't sin in that way, but, but God will forgive me. That's worship. Worship, worship is, is, is an, an outward display of what we believe inwardly about the worthiness of God. I was thinking about it this morning. You know, it's kind of funny, especially in a Baptist church like us, we get all hung up a little bit about raising our hands in worship, right? Like, oh, I wonder what anybody's going to think about me. Is anybody looking? Are you going to think I'm weird if I raise my hands? You know what? Watch the Super Bowl. I'm probably the only pastor in America who's going to tell you to watch the Super Bowl. And see if you think anybody is weird about raising their hands in excitement. You want to see worship at its finest? You want to see people declaring what they find worthy? Watch the Super Bowl. Now, it's idolatrous worship. But it is worship nonetheless. Look up how much a ticket to that game cost. Somebody was trying to travel to Arizona, I was talking to this week. Couldn't get plane tickets, they were ridiculously expensive. Had no idea why until they found out they were flying down there the same weekend as the Super Bowl. So we'll pay exorbitant amount of money for plane tickets and hotel rooms and uh, Super Bowl tickets to be able to to declare what's worthy. It's really interesting. You should look up, if you're interested in this kind of thing, the statistics on how many sex workers it takes to service the Super Bowl. It's disgusting. But it's worship nonetheless. It is people declaring what is ultimately worthy. Worship is the church's priority. Why do we gather for worship? Why do we preach and pray and sing as is commanded in 1 Timothy 2 and Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 and 2 Timothy 4? Why do we do all of these things for the purpose of worship? Why do we share the gospel 
to invite people to become worshipers? Why do we support missionaries around the globe so that worship will grow? Because worship is the ultimate priority of the church. And so our first purpose is worship. It is ministry to God. Our second priority is nurture. Nurture. This is ministry to believers. I don't just mean food, though that's true. I I wish I could remember who it was who, uh, maybe it was Dan, maybe you were telling me about somebody you met in Boise who was not a Christian but was showing you around a church and who said, if I were inclined to believe in Christianity, it would be because they care for one another. If you want to hear that story, talk to Dan and Janet. I'm not talking just about bringing meals after babies or hospital visits or sickness or things like that. That's certainly part of it, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But I mean, I mean spiritual nurture. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul tells us this. He says, Him we proclaim, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom in order that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Why did Paul preach the gospel? Why did he warn and teach with wisdom? To present everyone mature in Christ. That's one of the goals, is to present everyone mature in Christ. And as we think about that, remember that it is not the role of pastors to do the work of the ministry. My job is not to be the church's minister. My job is to equip you to be the church's ministers. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, this is a weird construction in Greek, but I think better than an and between shepherds and teachers is a hyphen. Uh, So there's really four offices here given to us in chronological order. And if you read the book of Acts, you can see this, that first Christ gave the church apostles, then prophets who were not apostles but contributed to the word of God, then evangelists who spread the church, and now shepherds and teachers or pastors. Um, This is the only, by the way, this occurrence right here, shepherd, is the only occurrence in the New Testament of the word pastor. Most of the terms are elder and overseer. This is the only occurrence of the noun form of the verb, to, to pastor or to shepherd. But they're shepherd teachers. They care for the flock and they teach. This is what pastors do. And in verse 12, we're told the purpose of that. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That means it's my job to equip you. It is your job to do the work of the ministry in the church for the building up of the body of Christ. This should scare you a little bit. Because if Trinity fails, it's not my fault. It's yours. Okay, maybe it'd be some my fault, because I'm part of the body as well. But let that that thought hang on you for a minute. It is not me and the elders who are responsible for Trinity's ministry. It's you. You are responsible for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This must beg the question, where do you conduct the ministry of nurture in the church? Where are you doing spiritual good to others? Where are you discipling the other people sitting in this room? What are you doing to build up the body of Christ by means of the work of ministry? Preaching is certainly part of that. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. But every one of us is accountable to God for every other one of us in this room. So we are called to a ministry of spiritual nurture amongst each other. How many ministries should there be in Trinity? How many people assemble themselves regularly here? That's the answer. 
And the third purpose of the church is evangelism. Evangelism. This is ministry to the world. This is ministry to the world. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore, it's a commandment. We can talk about this later, but if you've ever heard a sermon on why this would be better translated as going, that pastor did not know anything about Greek. There's a reason why no Bible translation translates this going or as you are going. It's absolutely a command. In fact, there are several commands in here. Go is a command. Make disciples is the main command to which the all, all the others are connected. Baptizing is also a command. Three commands here. Go, make disciples, baptize, and then teach is the next verse. That would also be a command. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Acts chapter 1, verses 16 uh, or 6 through 11. This is Jesus' final words to the church as he's ascending to heaven on a cloud. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, when, w- Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know what's so funny? From the moment Jesus is resurrected, from even before Pentecost, the church is obsessed with the question, are you coming back now, Lord? And notice that he, he shifts attention away from that. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's a city, Judea, that's a region, Samaria, that's a little further out, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men were standing with them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So until he comes back on a cloud, our call, our responsibility, one of the purposes of the church is to take the message of the gospel out. It doesn't stay here. It was never meant to stay here. It was meant to resound out of this place into Walla Walla and College Place and the county and Washington and the ends of the earth. And our responsibility as a church is to evangelize. And not just evangelize, but to do justice and mercy as well. Uh, For the sake of time, I'll... I'll skip over these quickly, but in Acts 11 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 1 John 3, we see a great concern from the church for people's economic conditions. We spread the gospel as well. Most of the New Testament examples, by the way, of mercy start in the church and then go out to the community. I know somebody recently who asked for help from her church, and the response that she got because she needed some financial assistance, was, we're sorry we can't help you. The burden in our community is too great. There's got to be balance there. If you neglect the needs of the church for the world, there's out of, you're out of balance. And if you neglect the needs of the world for the church, you're out of balance. And so let's ask the question, what happens when these are out of balance? What happens when we don't juggle these well? Well, um, there's a few things, I think. I think a church that overemphasizes worship, rather than holding all three in tension, I'm going to talk about overemphasizing, and be be forgiving with me towards that word, because I'm not sure we can overemphasize the importance of any of these. But for this portion of this message, when I say overemphasize, I mean out of balance with the other things. A church that overemphasizes worship becomes shallow. Worship is important. Remember, it's the ultimate priority. But it doesn't create maturity. I want to say that again because this is important in a worship by which most people mean music, a worship-obsessed church culture. Worship does not create maturity. Maturity fuels worship. The more you know and love who God is and what he has done, 
the more you have to get excited about when you sing. Don't, don't hear me say worship isn't important. But an overemphasis of worship creates a, sha- a shallow church where worship is then diminished. Lack of evangelism creates a church that withers and dies. A friend uh, in Tucson who's now with the Lord, his name was Stu Wilson, uh, incredible pastor and man of God, uh, he used to refer to him and his wife as a Q-tip, you know, white on top. Um, a church that does not care about evangelism doesn't take long to become a church full of Q-tips. We should value our Q-tips. Scripture does. And we're foolish if we don't. We should value a church that has baby Christians and mature Christians and who don't isolate themselves in growth groups that never mix. Lack of evangelism creates a church that withers and dies. An overemphasis on evangelism to the exclusion of the others creates a church that is immature and malnourished. And then an overemphasis on nurture, an overemphasis on discipleship and teaching to the exclusion of the others, uh, it, it will, will be a church full of members who are spiritually dry, who do not know the joy of worship or evangelism. Which of these do you think Trinity is prone to? Which of these do you think you're prone to? Now, finally, I would ask the question, what do we do with all this? What about, how does this affect my daily life, Logan? I need something to do with this. I'll give you three things. We're on threes today. Number one, participate in the gathering of the church. Participate in the gathering of the church. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You know what? Let me put this in different terms to you. The author of Hebrews is saying, Let's not fall off the rock. Let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering, without slipping, without stumbling, without falling. Anybody wake up this morning and show up here and say, man, I really hope I make spiritual train wreck of my life today. The author of Hebrews is saying, let's not do that. How do we not do that? Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You may have heard, and you would have heard rightly, that this idea of stirring up could be provoke. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good works. Who provokes you to godliness? And who are you provoking to godliness? Spend more time with those people. And here it is, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Not neglecting to meet together. We assemble and provoke. Assemble and provoke. We assemble, we provoke, and then we go out and we do those love and good works that God has prepared in advance that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2. But the verse doesn't end there. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Every single Sunday that goes by, there is additional days that should put more importance on the gathering of the church, not less. There is more need in this day and age, this digital day and age where you can consume and consume and consume and nourish and nourish and nourish without much evangelism and without much worship. There's not less need in this technological day and age to gather. There is more need because every day that goes by, we're closer to the day that Christ comes back. Every day is an additional day. And guess what? Your kids, 
If you have kids, they're going to need the church more than you do. What are you displaying for them? What are you displaying for them? Because I'm convinced that if you are, if you've counted the cost, if you're obeying God, if you are involved in the life of the church and worship and nurture and evangelism, there's a pretty good church or a pretty good chance that your kids will be too. But if you're like 75% in, they're going to be less and less and less. You know one of the reasons why we have devoted ourselves to the life of the church? It's because I want to see my grandkids and my great-grandkids walk with the Lord. What I invest today affects them. We must participate in the gathering of the church. Should you go on vacation? Yes, you should. Should you stay home when you're sick? Yes, you should. But when you're here, should you... Here's the way I think of it. The, 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 the church is not the whole of our lives. It's the hub of it. It's the center of it, and everything goes out from there. We gather, we provoke, and then we go to work. We go to witness We go disciple our families. We go worship privately. Participate in the gathering. Thank you, Dwayne. Left my water bottle in my office. I hear all the time, look, Logan, I don't have to be, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You're absolutely right. You also don't have to go home to be married, but that doesn't make it a good idea. Number two, participate in a growth group and ABF. Or really, i got to be honest, it's hard for me to stand up here and implore you all to go to an ABF when I can find neither teachers nor participants. But I'm going to do it anyways. Make the most of your Sunday morning. Teach an ABF. Use, use Right Now Media. Show a video series and, and lead some conversations. But participate in a growth group and an ABF. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And I'll try and hurry and get done. We're running out of time. And they devoted themselves, that is the church, to the apostles' teaching, there's preaching, to fellowship, that's gathering, to the breaking of bread. This is the breaking of bread. This is communion and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They weren't communists. They didn't sell all they had and distribute it as evenly. There were haves and have-nots, but the haves willingly sold their possessions to give to the have-nots. And verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together, there's the gathering, and breaking bread in homes, sharing meals together, being hospitable, sharing life with one another. This is nurture. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God, there's worship, and having favor with all the people, there's evangelism. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Don't just be spiritual takers. You should expect to receive nourishment from the church. And you should expect to give nourishment to others as well. You should expect to to, to give and get And probably what you get out of the church will be in proportion to what you give to the church. It's really, really, really rare that somebody's like, I'm just tired and frustrated with the church, I'm out of here, and they're serving well. You can make a connection of that in your own mind. And then three, find ways to share the gospel with people. Get to know people, get to know your neighbors, have them over, go to their things, and they might come to your things, invite them to church, introduce uh, other believers to them. 
I want us to close again with with Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The safest way to conduct the spiritual life in a spiritually dangerous world is to cling to Christ and each other. You've got to cling to his life, his death, his resurrection. If you have never taken that first step, if you have not trusted him, then being connected to other believers doesn't mean anything. You have to first be connected to the rock and then be connected to others. Then be tied off to a local body of believers. It is the safest way to live out our spiritual life. It's how we hold fast. I think it was a Pirates of the Caribbean movie that one of the, one of the pirate guys had hold fast tattooed on his fingers. I love that image. I don't have any tattoos. Maybe that should be my first. I'm going to hold fast. Hold fast without wavering to Christ and to one another. Heavenly Father, thank you for not leaving us alone. Thank you for giving us the church, for our safety, for our good, for worship, for evangelism, and for our joy. Lord, if there is anybody here today who has not tasted of the goodness of the church, Would you help them to take steps towards involvement, towards service, towards being served that show them just how good life in the church can be? Yes, sin happens. Yes, we hurt each other. Yes, people abuse spiritual authority. And and you're working on those things in your church, Lord. We know all of those things are there. Those don't diminish the goodness of your plan as you work all things for our good calling us to yourself and into the church. Help us to take steps together for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.